Welcome to the Hope Chapel Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. We currently are meeting again for in-person services and would love to have you join us if you feel comfortable. Our in-person service times are Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 9 or 11 a.m. You can also tune into our live stream on Sundays at 9 and 11 by going to hopechapel.org forward slash live. Amen. Thank you, Jared. Good morning. Well, welcome back to church. <laughs> uh, so um, first things first, uh, I changed the title of my sermon in between when I gave them the notes and they printed them. And uh, so now what you can do is you can uh, go to your sermon notes if you'd like and you can scratch out that one and put in that one. I'm hoping it won't change uh, while I preach it this morning. Now you can turn to Colossians 2, verse 1, and we'll read uh, five verses together. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along using the screens on either my right or my left. Paul says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged, be knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet... I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Uh, I've been watching this show. I've watched like four or five seasons of it now. I was introduced to it by someone else. The show's called Alone. Anyone seen that show? If you haven't seen that show, it's about a bunch of maniacs who <laughs> go up to, and this is going to sound like an exaggeration, it's not, to the Arctic Circle to survive as long as they can. Uh, I'm not an outdoorsman. I'm very much an endorsement. <laughs> Could be considered an avid endorsement. <laughs> this is not some of the sort of show I would like, but I like it, um, and I like it because there's, there's two things about it I like. Uh, one is everyone kind of has to do the same thing. When you go out into the wilderness and you survive, assuming that's a thing that you do, what do you need? You need water, you need food, and you need... So everyone basically does those three things. And anyone who deviates from those three things, they don't do well. One guy uh, in like the second day decided a good thing to do while he was trying to survive in the Arctic was to build a hot tub. I'm making fun of him, but like the second the cold wind hits my face, I'm tapping out, right? <laughs> the other thing that strikes me about this show is how quickly it can turn from Little House on the Prairie to Castaway. It is crazy quick. Things are going fine, and then really, really on, like, on a dime, someone can go from surviving to having to call in a rescue team to come and get them. Like one guy gets off the helicopter, 
And he's like, I'm going to win this million dollars, takes five steps, sprains his ankle, taps out. Like, <laughs> one guy eats a squirrel, makes him sick, he's done, right? It's quick. And they're all experts. It's not guys like me. It's serious guys, serious men and women who are all into survival. I should warn you, I'm going to take a slightly darker turn real quickly. I think back on my life to people who I've prayed with, who I've read the Bible with, who I have gone to seminary with, who I've been accountable to and have been accountable to me, uh, those people who have since left the faith. Anybody have an experience like that? Someone you know leaves the faith. It could be a friend, a brother, a sister, a husband or a wife, a parent. could be a child. Um, now, the first thing I want to say is this, and this is not really what I want to spend my time talking about. First is this. Uh, do not lose hope for those people because God loves them more than you do and he is more capable of saving them than you are. And you can rest in that and you can trust God. The other thing related to that is I think what Paul is doing here is describing how the church can live a strong life of faith to resist falling away, either as individuals or as groups of people. Um, I want to be clear. From God's perspective, he never loses anyone. Anyone who God calls, he will ultimately glorify. You're not going to fall through the cracks in his hands. He is not a weakling. What he sets out to do, he will take to the finish line. From our perspective, we don't have that same assurance about every single person that we know. We believe that God is faithful, but we know sometimes people we thought were believers turn out not to be. And those very people at some point believed themselves to be believers. So we were given means of grace in the words of the New Testament, to live lives of faithfulness and righteousness and obedience and commitment before the Lord with each other. Have you guys been liking Colossians so far? Yes. Yeah, me too. It begins and Paul introduces himself and he prays for them and he talks about the things that he wants to happen to them and then he moves into this amazing Christological moment where he describes Christ who is supreme above everything, the creator, the Redeemer, the Sustainer, all things hold together in Him. He's the one that moved us from the realm of darkness into the kingdom of His Son. Really big statements about Jesus that are like scandalous if they were to be made about anybody else. He tells us that we were saved because of Jesus. And then he begins to talk about his own ministry. Mike preached about this last week. He begins to talk about his own ministry. And then when we get into chapter 2, which, by the way, we're just now in chapter 2. We're starting chapter 2 today. Uh, Paul begins to talk about his ministry specifically to the Colossians. And I just want to say, uh, everything Paul has to say to them, and I really think much of what Paul has to say, period, uh, would not make sense to people who think that church is an event that you attend occasionally. <laughs> would not make sense to people who think that church is the sort of thing where you look for the one that you like the best and you attend as long as you like it. Churches of people bound together covenantally, who've all met Jesus, who have all been changed because of Jesus, who commit to gathering together, to hearing the gospel preached, and to taking the ordinances, the communion and baptism, 
and they're committed to those things. So when Paul talks to the church at Colossae, he's talking to people who have made that commitment in a context far less comfortable with churches than even our context today. So he's beginning to describe to them what he wants his ministry to do for them. Look at verse 2. Uh, sorry, verse, verse 1. He says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. The word he uses for struggle is the word where we get our word, agony. I've never been in agony as far as I know. Many of you out there have been in agony, right? Physical agony, emotional agony, things of not going well. We associate agony with like either pain or in, like an intense struggle. If someone's in agony, it's never a good thing. Paul's saying, I am agonizing over this group. That is those at Colossae and then by extension, all of those in the Lycus Valley, the Laodiceans, and even though he doesn't mention them by name, the churches at Hierapolis. And these are Christians that Paul's never met. He's never met them. He didn't begin this church. He didn't pastor at this church. He's talking to people who he has not seen face to face and may never see face to face at the writing of this letter. He's in prison agonizing on their behalf. Because he's agonizing on the behalf of Christ, he's agonizing on the behalf of Christ's people. He's suffering for Christ, so he's suffering for these people. But what I want to say is Paul believes that his faithful gospel living, faithful in chains to other people who believe in Jesus, will form them and shape them even though he's never met them. Have you ever been changed by just watching someone else's life? There are lots of quiet yeses. Yes. Yes. It's not a library. <laughs> there's a sense where we talk about how Jesus lives a certain way, and then Paul imitates Jesus, and then we imitate Paul, and I think that's good. I don't think it's just a chain link. I think when we think about the church as we live life together, it's chain mail. It's links of chain gathered together, connected to chains all around them. So as we think about what Paul says here, in one sense, I want to get into the details of what he desires for this church to be on account of his ministry. But I never wanted to leave our minds that Paul believes the church will grow in these ways because he is serving as a faithful example for them. So the first is this, he wants them to be encouraged in heart. We could just read real briefly in 2a, Paul says, that their hearts may be encouraged. Who likes to be encouraged? <laughs> I've been told many times that I do not have the gift of encouragement. <laughs> That's true. I don't. I think that when we think of encouragement, we think of encouragement as uh, kind of acting in kindness towards someone who's feeling down. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there are people out there with the faithful ministry of sending cards. Those are faithful people, right? They know someone's not doing well. They go to the grocery store. They get a little card. They write them a card. They send it to that person. Everyone received a card and been blessed by that? Anybody ever? Yeah. And that's good. I think kindness is a part of what Paul means by encouragement. I don't think it is the full substance of what he means by encouragement. He uses this Greek word, perkaleo, which appears all over the place in the New Testament. It means a lot of different things. But in this case, I don't think it just means lifting spirits I think it has the connotation of strengthening to make stronger. 
So a little less comfort, a little more training, a little bit more strengthening. If you uh, encourage people by lifting their spirits, that is a good thing. I don't want you to hear me saying that that's a bad thing. That's a good thing. Continue your ministry of sending cards to people. I don't really do that. I'm so thankful that you do that. But Paul means more than that. If you go to the gym and you want to get fit, you don't ask for a personal encourager. (laughs) Right? Maybe some people do. (laughs) Like the guy who's like, hey, you know what? Nine reps, good enough. You're doing great. Here's a candy bar. You did it. Your heart was in it today. Right? Strengthening. Strengthening each other. And he he says that your hearts might be encouraged. The encouragement of hearts. Um, We think of hearts today as the seat of emotion, where we feel emotion, sadness, and happiness, and anger. And that's part of what Paul is saying. Think of what it means for something to affect our heart. Our heart goes after something. We feel something in our heart. Um, Recently, my daughter discovered Mr. Rogers. Like, kind of on her own. It was weird. You guys ever watched Mr. Rogers as a kid? So she discovers Mr. Rogers, and I hear her describing it to my son in the back seat. She's like, yeah, he wears a sweater, and there's uh, puppets, and he feeds fish, and there's no cartoons. And she's like, it's really great. And my son's like, I don't understand how that's great. Can you explain to me how that's great? She's like, well, it's heartwarming. (laughs) Uh, There's a sense in which, like, part of our inner life is that our hearts are warmed, I think that's good, Paul is again going bigger. He's not just saying, I want your spirits to be lifted, I want you to feel feelings of happiness, I want you to be kind to each other so that you're happy. I think that's a subset of what he's saying. He's saying something bigger than that. Look at what he says in Ephesians 3. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Paul's saying something a lot more like, I want your souls to be strengthened. Who wants a strong soul? The entire inner life that you have, not just your emotions, although including your emotions, everything, like a physical fitness trainer would do for you. I want you guys to have souls that are strengthened. I want your hearts to be encouraged. And look at what the outcome of a church which has encouraged hearts is. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. That is what it looks like when a church has hearts that are encouraged, that have set their hope on something greater than the immediate and fleeting pleasures and happinesses of life. It's good to be happy. I don't think it's bad to be happy. (laughs) It's better to be hopeful than it is to be happy. Paul's saying he wants their hearts to be encouraged. And I just want to see, like, the purpose of that, right? He's not saying that we get through all these things because of the little things in life. We're not crushed because, you know, we get to do these fun things later or whatever. He goes on to explain what the, the impact that is, the outcome, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. What does he mean? He means that as our hearts are strengthened, as our hearts are encouraged, as we persist through maybe the same or similar agonies that Paul and other faithful believers have in the past, we show people 
the person of Jesus in our lives. Do you want to do that? Oh, do you want to display Jesus in your life? This can only happen uh, together. can't happen alone. Paul's talking to a group that he assumes is in it together. I try and resist sports analogies as often as I possibly can. But I've been told by other men in the church to relate better to men, I should use sports analogies. So I'm going to use one real briefly. If there was a basketball coach who told all the players... Practice dribbling and running and shooting on your own, and on Wednesdays we'll get together to cover the passing. That would be a bad basketball coach, right? I assume. (laughs) I want you to see my point. The church is only ever properly done together. That the Christian life is only ever properly done together. That what we're doing this morning is something that we actually must do in order to rightly be called the church. I know it's complicated right now. I know it's complex. I know there's people at home that can't be here. I'm not trying to criticize anyone. I'm trying to say this, that we have, is a profound blessing in which we can strengthen each other's souls. Paul wants that for the church at Colossae, for all those in the Lycus Valley. I believe God wants that for us. He also wants us to be unified in love. Unified in love. Paul goes on. He says that their hearts may be encouraged. Then being knit together in love. Knit together in love. It's unfortunate that love is kind of a cheap word today, right? I use the same word for my wife and 7-Eleven. I love both of them. (laughs) Not equally. I love you more than 7-Eleven, just to be clear. But it's the same word, right? And love is reduced to sentimentality. It's reduced to a feeling. It's reduced sometimes to sexuality. It's a word that means a lot of things except for, I think, the thing that it actually should mean. Uh, love is not, first and foremost, a feeling. I think it is something that you feel. I meet with young people for premarital counseling sometimes. Premarital counseling is good. If you want to get married, you should do that. And they say, these really young people, they're like, oh, we love each other so much. We've got butterflies in our stomach. You know, and I'm like, ugh, gross, right? (laughs) (laughs) It's good. Those feelings are good. I'm sure someone would look at the state of my marriage who's been married for 50 years and think, you don't even know yet. (laughs) We've cheapened it. Love is, very fundamentally, uh, an other-focused thing. It's sacrificial. It's designed for the sake of other people, not for you. So in our culture today, love is a benefit we experience by being around someone that we have affection for. It's like a feeling in our heart. But that's not the way the Bible describes love. Um, I want to show you a famous passage. You, You know this one. You've heard it a million times. You've heard it read. At weddings, I've probably read it at some of your weddings. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. 
It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, once in that passage, do we read about the benefits of love for the one doing the loving? It is others focused. It is sacrificial. Love is not first a feeling, it's an action. It's setting aside your own rights and desires for the sake of someone else. I want to give you a way to practice this. Can I give you like a tool that I have used that I think is helpful? You guys aren't super responsive. I'm asking permission to do a thing. Okay. Just for a second, not in a sinful way, imagine the person on the planet that annoys you the most. Okay? Last night when I did this, there was an audible, ugh, from someone. Like that picture was really vivid in their brain. Okay? Okay, imagine that person. Don't sin. Don't sin. Just imagine that person. Now, I want you to commit to praying for them every day. For that person. Not petty prayers of, like, revenge, right? Real, honest prayers that the Lord would bless them, increase them, and bear fruit in their lives. Okay? Because here's why. You cannot commit to praying for someone for very long and then resist loving them. Praying for someone will make you love them. It will. Try it. Deal? <laughs> love is uh, not just um, a feeling. It's a thing we do. And I want to say it is the tool here that Paul is giving to the church for them to be unified. It is instrumental um, we didn't all love each other and then vote on which Lord we would serve. You follow me on that? Uh, it was the other way around. We encountered Jesus, and then we gathered together with other people who had encountered Jesus and been given new hearts, and we do not necessarily all get along. We have different opinions on things. We have personalities that might grate with other people. Paul is saying that love, sacrificial self-giving for the sake of the other, is the way that we find unity. It's not just a feeling that results from unity. It's the way that we find it. It's in love that we are unified. It's instrumental. Does that make sense? Love is also an apologetic. Read uh, John 17, verse 20, Jesus praying. He says, I do not ask for these only, that is, those who are with him at the time, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that, look at Hope Chapel, look, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. I want you to see that this is actually kind of a sharp passage. Jesus is saying one of the ways that we proclaim the gospel, that other people on the outside will know that the Father sent the Son is that we love each other and that we're unified. 
And if we're not loving each other, and if we are not unified, we're proclaiming the opposite thing. We're either going to tell the truth about Jesus or we're going to lie about Jesus. And the way that we exercise love, sacrificial giving of ourselves for the sake of other people, to achieve unity as a church. Do you want another tool? One person does. Another tool is patience. You ever been patient with somebody? <laughs> it's like, yeah, I have. Like right now. Patience uh, is when sometimes you just overlook things. You let things go. You guys ever let things go? It's good. Sometimes you must just be patient with people. There's a trap there, though, a trap that I fall into all the time. Someone does something that I don't like. They hurt my feelings. They make me mad. And I decide to exercise patience. And then my own patience goes to my own head. I'm like, man, I was really patient yesterday when that person wronged me. Just real patient. Just, they're so lucky to have me in their lives. <laughs> so patient. The world's probably better because of how patient I was yesterday. <laughs> Start thinking about what pose I will have when the church paints the portrait of St. Andrew the Patient. <laughs> Anybody identify with that? Your own righteousness goes to your own head. Like, I was patient, but man, that was dope that I was patient, right? <laughs> Here's what I uh, remind myself of when I begin to fall into that trap. No matter how patient I am being with somebody, somebody else is being more patient with me. Really, truly, actually. Patience is powerful if it doesn't lead us to arrogance. Paul says he wants the church knit together by love, in love. I don't think that means we won't disagree about things, that we won't have healthy debates, that we're always going to get along in every way and in every scenario. I do know this. I don't think the world is getting along very well right now. It feels to me like most institutions are not doing well. I'm not excited about the cultural, social future of the world. I think things will, like, they might get worse. You guys, anybody feel that way? Okay, so I'm not alone. Good. <laughs> Um, what a profound opportunity for the church to exercise supernatural unity in love when the rest of the world is split in half. What would, what would it be like to waste that? What would it be like to waste that? As Culture has problems. As our, our nation has problems, our city, our state, what if the church looked like something supernatural was happening amongst it? Unified in love, amen? amen. Established in Christ. Established in Christ. Uh, we're still in verse 2. <laughs> He says, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul 
kind of goes back to this Christological high point. Jesus at the center of this level. Christ is supreme. The supremacy of Christ. Everything begins with Christ. It ends with Christ. It's held together with Christ. There is no knowledge of the spiritual life outside of Christ. He just goes back to that well, and he'll continue to do that over and over and over again. But you'll notice he uses a ton of words in a row here that might be a little bit confused. you guys ever get confused when you read Paul? No? Just occasionally, right? Every once in a while, you get a little confused. That's okay. Me too. Peter got confused too. If you read, you can see that. He says, full assurance, understanding, knowledge, mystery, wisdom, knowledge, all in a row. That's a lot. And some commentators have been like, let's kind of unpack what's happening there. I think Paul is really doing one major thing here. He's using the catchwords of some of the false teaching that was happening at the edges, at the periphery of, of the Colossian church to remind them of where true knowledge comes from. Can I give you a little bit of history? Okay. Two of the contenders for the heresy that was being uh, kind of maybe preached in and around the Colossian church uh, were, uh, first one was Gnosticism. Anyone heard of Gnosticism before? Most people have heard of Gnosticism. Most people just kind of go, yes, I've heard of Gnosticism, and, and they pretend like they know what it means. I did that for years. Gnosticism is a two-God theology, not a one-God theology. There is the unknowable, incorporeal, non-physical God. And then there's this stupid God that created the physical world in Gnosticism. So the physical world is bad. Your bodies, the earth, plants, trees, animals, everything bad, according to Gnostic belief. And if you had special secret knowledge about that truth, you could live at peace knowing eventually you'd be released from your physical body. Everyone following that? So Paul says knowledge over and over and over again here to call into question that there could be secret knowledge that the Christians might attain that might add to their spiritual life. He's saying, no, the Gnostics are wrong. The other one is is, uh, ancient mystery religions where people would sort of like initiate you into secret mysteries. They tell you the secret. Sound familiar? (laughs) Paul uses the word mystery. The mystery which is what? Christ. Paul's saying, there's no secret. (laughs) There's no secret. It's being announced everywhere. There's no secret in the gospel. There's no secret knowledge. There's no special plane of spirituality you can ascend to if you find the special nuggets of truth anywhere in the world. He is saying, the substance and complete totality of knowledge you need to live a faithful Christian life to be spiritually healthy, to be taken all the way to the end, to the resurrection, is found in Jesus Christ. And that's it. There is no name other than the name of Christ in which you can be saved. Jesus plus nothing. He says, the treasure is in Jesus. It's hidden in Jesus. He doesn't mean so much withheld from believers in Jesus. He means it is within Jesus. Where do we find out about Jesus? I have one. A lot of people are doing this. You can point to your phones, point to the screens. Testimony of Jesus for us is found in the Word of God. Um, I am not saying... Don't read other books. I like to read. I'm saying don't expect to find there anything that will enhance your spiritual life in a way that the Bible could not. They're good. 
and the best ones point you back to the Bible. And I'm saying that as someone who reads a lot of books. I want to be clear. Everything that you need, everything that you need to be assured all the way to the end, to live a full and obedient and righteous and spiritually healthy life, everything you need is found in Jesus. You don't need anything else. Lastly, Paul desires for them to be ready in defense. Paul says in verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Paul does not want them to be deluded, or some translations say things like deceived or misled by plausible arguments. Notice he is not concerned about implausible arguments. Plausible arguments. Things that seem like they make sense. Sometimes I watch debates, and I'll hear the first guy talk, and he'll say, here's my three points, and he'll make them, and I'm like, that guy is absolutely right. There's no way he's wrong. I'm 100% convinced. And the second guy will get up and do his part. I'm like, change my mind. Guy number two, totally right. <laughs> and it's like, sometimes not even really the substance of the argument. They're just great debaters. Uh, Paul is concerned about people who might be sort of sweetly talked away from the truth about Jesus Christ by arguments that seem plausible, but probably aren't plausible. He's not concerned about the really crazy stuff. I am not worried that tomorrow, half our congregation will become Scientologists. I'm just, I'm not worried about it. If you're close, please come speak to me. I'd love to talk to you about that. But that's not the sort of thing that holds a lot of serious weight in our culture, at least not anymore. I'm concerned about subtle changes in the gospel. I'm concerned about subtle inclusions from our culture into the substance of the gospel. I'm concerned about things that I think might actually lead various members here astray. Paul does not want them to be deluded, and he is cheerful and joyful and thankful to see their good order and the firmness of their faith in whom? It's right at the end of the passage, the last word. In Christ. We're not a group of people that got together because we already loved each other, because we already made each other feel good, because we all had the same sports or movie interests. We're all here today, if we're believers, we're here today because we encountered Jesus. We called on his name. We were given new hearts. You guys still with me? I think it is easy for us today to see the first blessing of the gospel the person of Jesus Christ, the salvation made possible through his work. We all believe that, right? There's a second one. He doesn't just give us the person of Jesus. He gives us a people that belong to Jesus, that can stand together firm and founded in Christ himself, that can strengthen each other's souls, that can be unified in love. It's a blessing. It's a blessing. I think back to the first illustration early on this morning 
of the show alone. You know what would be a really uneventful show? Is if they just all stayed together. <laughs> they could all solve each other's problems. They'd all pick up the slack. The guy who sprained his ankle wouldn't have to go home. See what I'm saying? The church, our church here, Hope Chapel, specifically in Hermosa Beach, is a profound blessing for us. I want to see one other thing. Uh, when we're around each other, we are always, whether we mean to or not, discipling each other, either to be more like Jesus or less like Jesus. Paul is a discipler who makes people around him more like Jesus. He struggles on behalf of those he does not even know, that they might become more like Jesus. Every single person here, every time you're around another believer, every time we're gathered together on Sunday or on Saturday night, we have an opportunity to struggle on behalf of the other people who are there to make them more like Jesus. Your life, your life, your gospel living can be a gospel witness to those outside the church and very importantly also to those inside the church. Don't waste that. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example of faithful men and women in the past, such as in this case Paul and the leaders of the church at Colossae and Epaphras. We thank you that your word went out, that your message went out, that people heard it, they believed it, and they passed it on such that everyone here today found in Jesus is here because of the faithful chain of witness over the course of millennia all around the world that you sovereignly ordained that each of us here would hear through some person the name of Jesus Christ. I pray for those who are here today that do not yet know your son, that you would grant them faith and repentance, that you would send your spirit out to convict their hearts. They would see the magnificence of Jesus himself and the way of salvation made only possible through Jesus. I pray all these things in his name. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, I'd like to thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.